Well, thanks very much for inviting me. I'm honoured that you've chosen this event over the World Cup. Um, I'm a sociologist and cultural studies theorist who works at City University of London. Um, I'm a member of the Labour Party relatively recently, over the past few years. Um, and I also do some work for um, a couple of journals, one academic journal called European Journal of Cultural Studies, another more kind of public connecting journal called Soundings, the Journal of Politics and Culture. Um, and today I'm going to talk about the work I've done on, on my most recent book on meritocracy. Um, so I'm, just, I'm going to talk through issues I have with it and ways I think they manifest and problems that I have. And at the end, I hope we can have a bit of a chat about what you think too. Okay, so meritocracy today, is that too close? Is that okay? That's all right? Okay. So meritocracy today <coughs> means that <coughs> whatever our social, it's generally taken to mean whatever our social position at birth, society ought to offer enough opportunity for a mobility for talent to rise up <clears throat> sorry, for talent to combine with effort in order for people to rise up the social pile um, and make it to the top. So it's an idea or an ideology or a platform that today in Europe and beyond, uh, many politicians are repeatedly elected upon. So in, in Britain, in Europe, in the US and beyond. So we might think, for example, about how Obama's 2013 inaugural address proclaimed that we are true to our creed when a little girl born into the bleakest poverty knows that she has the same chance to succeed as anybody else. In South Africa, there's been widespread criticism that the ANC has not created as meritocratic a state as it should have, that it needs to be more meritocratic. And in Britain, since becoming Prime Minister, Theresa May announced that she wanted to introduce a meritocracy, that her, gov her government would be more meritocratic than any previous one, which the Sun dubbed a meritocracy. And I think even Donald Trump uses it uh, by saying that it's okay to run child internment camps at the US-Mexican border because there are rules and people should only be in the US on merit. So this is a narrative that in various different ways is kind of normalised across the political spectrum and outside the party political sphere. So just today, if you say an institution is meritocratic, you're paying it a compliment. Yeah? It's, it's generally taken to mean something good. And it's an idea or a trope that's as present in popular culture, I think, as it is in the speeches and vocabulary of politicians. So you, we might think of how globally franchised TV shows like Idol or The Apprentice promote this idea of a social landscape in which you, you know, talent will out if you work hard enough and you know, use your elbows. And similarly, you can think about how educational institutions today constantly promote the idea that you only need to work really hard to get ahead you know, and then you will succeed. So we might say that meritocracy has become one of the kind of key um, normalising principles or structures of feeling in the global north. And I think its, it's very potency lies in a kind of progressive idea. You know, it comes from the endorsing the idea um, of social mobility as pitted against older forms of inherited privilege. So it's always been presented in some way as a kind of rebellion against older, outdated systems of elites and elitism. So in a way, if you take issue with it, in some ways it's, it's kind of, it feels very strange and abnormal. It feels like you're taking issue with motherhood and apple pie, yeah? 
But I think we, we need to, both because its, it's problems are becoming more and more apparent and because kind of structurally, I think it serves to prop up um, lots of you know, kind of bad inequalities that you know, it's, it serves to work as an alibi for inequality in really dangerous ways. So I thought I might start by kind of trying to break down what some of the problems are that I have with, with meritocracy. And there's lots of really interesting work in different disciplines like education in particular that I'm going to draw on to do that. So what are my problems with meritocracy? Well, firstly, I think it's problematic because it endorses a very competitive linear system in which, by definition, people are, must be left behind. It offers what some people call a ladder system of social mobility. You know, the ladder of opportunity is there for you to climb. And what's partly wrong with this, I think, is that the ladder is really hierarchical. The top can't exist without the bottom. And so failed talent is therefore necessary the kind of necessary and structural condition of meritocracy's existence. And it's also a really individualistic model. Um, so as the cultural theorist Raymond Williams argued in, in 1958, the ladder's a perfect symbol of what he called the bourgeois ideal of society, because he said, whilst it offers you the, the possibility of climbing, of some kind of social success, you do so individually. It's, he says it's a device that can only be used individually. You go up the ladder alone. And he says it sweetens the poison of hierarchy by offering growth through merit rather than through money or birth. Um, and it retains a commitment to the notion of hierarchy itself. So I think that's a really powerful argument against it. And it's a really core feature of, of meritocratic ideas. You know, it promises you opportunity. It promises you a chance to succeed. But at the same time, it fosters social division. And I think that in the contemporary era, the promises of meritocracy are increasingly loudly trumpeted um, and are flagged up. And competitive participation is being presented as something that we're kind of morally obliged to do at the same time as these ladders, these social ladders have grown longer and longer. So we might think here, for example, about how for most lower and working middle class people in the UK and US, the potential for upward social mobility has either stabilized or declined in the past few decades. And moreover, we might think about how, um, as the sociologists uh, talk about Fisher and all talk about in their really great book, Inequality by Design, they point out that while some countries and societies have short and broad ladders with lots of room for people to climb together all the way to the top, other societies are much more narrow and there's much more of a division between the, the most rich and the most poor. Um, they, so they flag up the US and South Africa, but increasingly the, the UK as well. You know, these are societies with increasingly long distance between the top and the bottom rungs of social privilege. So this is, a, this is a problem, I think, you know, this profoundly hierarchical, individualistic nature of meritocracy. And we might think as well about how people that do rise up and do get to, you know, the top to succeed tend to pass on that financial privilege to their children, yeah? So therefore, you kind of pass on the privilege and you contribute to a society which is kind of really far away from a level playing field, as you can possibly imagine. So meritocracy, I think, is a kind of tautology in a way, because you have this idea that you offer financial incentives for those that make it, those that succeed, and then you, you end up with a field which is anything but level. 
So I have that problem with it. <clears throat> the second problem, and this isn't always there, but it's often there, I think, is that meritocracy often assumes that talent is something uh, that you're born with, yeah? that's something it's, that's primarily an inborn ability that's either given the chance to succeed or not. And whilst there's, there's something to this, um, in, it can, can I mobilise or use this very narrow conception of what talent is, which ignores or downplays social context. So we might think here about how, you know, it, that there are many different factors which, which help successful musicians, yeah? And you have to have access to the, to the instrument to start off with. You have to have people encouraging you. You have to have tuition. So there's not just, you know, just a talent which involves working hard to succeed. It's not just you and your individual talent and your own volition. <clears throat> so, so kind of meritocracy kind of can mobilize this very essentialized in idea of talent as something kind of inborn from the start. You're just born with it or you're not. And this has quite a difficult history in terms of how it relates to, how merit relates to the power dynamics of its context. Because in the kind of modern era, a lot of the, con the social contexts that we live in have been very gendered and racialized in particular ways. So to imply women or people of color um, either have or produced culture of less merit has been a staple of racist and sexist discourse that's kind of worked in very graf graphic form and mobilized as a kind of rationalization for apartheid. So here we might think about how who's taken to have merit, in other words, is often something that kind of smuggles in lots of very gendered and very kind of racialized criteria. So if we think um, about, you can think about university admissions in this, this is a kind of really prime example. So Harvard University in the States, for example, um, <clears throat> at the turn of the 19th century, they had a, a, a new president who got annoyed at what he thought of as getting the increasing applications from what he thought of as the stupid sons of the rich. So what he did was he changed the way in which the admissions test um, and the admissions procedure ran and was being held. So he tripled the number of locations where it was possible to sit the entrance exam. And he abolished the part of the test that was in Greek because it, that wasn't something that was available for everyone to sit. So the, the result of this, this kind of policy of kind of widening access, widening participation, was that there were many more students that were let into Harvard from public schools. You know, in, in the American sense, including um, more Catholics and more Jews. But then later on, um, in the earlier 20th century, they, there was a kind of racist panic over the erosion of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant privilege. So they had a new president called Lawrence Lau, and they, they kind of identified what they saw as a Jewish problem, and he, ref, he reformed the tests again in a more aggressive way. So what he did was to insist on a photo, you know, with all the kind of, all the laden issues of racialization that that can kind of smuggle in. You choose people that you think look appropriate. And they introduced the criteria of having a well-rounded character, which is something which is really kind of problematic and live in university admissions. It's been in the news only this week as something that's, you know, can kind of smuggle in loads of criteria favoring people that come from very privileged backgrounds. So, so this is a kind of really live area, you know, what merit is and is, what it's decided to be is, can, can be quite kind of controversial, it's quite, quite debatable. Um, and how it's, if you, if you identify people that have merit and, you know, fast track them, often you're privileging quite privilege that already exists and you're kind of underprivileging people that are already underprivileged. 
So we could think about how, for example, in the US, you know, they, they, there are lots of wealthy people, wealthy middle-class people who um, give, throw, throw money and kind of get their kids to, to sit, um, throw money at tuition for their kids to sit exams. Um, it's sometimes called affirmative action for the white middle classes. And then the UK, you could think about how um, similarly tuition works um, over grammar schools and how there's that kind of anxiety over, you know, grammar schools in general, that whole policy is a, is a policy which kind of favours the privileged already. Um, or what Danny Dorling calls an apartheid system of education. So there's kind of very, <clears throat> there's also really good <clears throat> work, excuse me. <clears throat> And there's, there's lots of really great work in, in education studies by people who work on meritocracy. Um, people like Diane Ray. <coughs> Sorry, it's gone. <coughs> Back again. Um, and they talk about how middle class parents you know, work the system and how working class people get excluded. So I think this, this kind of issue, these issues over merit are quite live and important, and they're getting, they're getting more pronounced at the moment in many ways across schools and across universities with the, the obsession over competitive rankings in particular. Um, so I would agree with kind of moves towards comprehensive education to, to reinvigorate that and towards an end to running prof universities as for-profit businesses as well as with what in America the civil rights scholar Lani Gounier um, calls an end to the, she calls for an end to the testocracy. For, and she calls an end for what she sees as a really stratified educational system. And instead for more kind of collaborative teaching, more collaboration between schools, between universities, and to what she calls democratic merit. It's really important. So the third problem I have is with the, um, the, the kind of hierarchical ranking of status that it endorses. So here we might ask, you know, what does it mean to rise to the top of the pile anyway? You know, why is it that we're encouraged to think that being an entrepreneur who earns loads of money is more socially important than being a vet or a nurse? You know, why is that something that gets privileged and thought of as being successful? So what are our very criteria of success in the first place in, in that idea? And I think what, what meritocracy this idea does now is help extend a really narrow status system in which some people are rendered abject, you know, as worthless, and other people are positioned as successful. And this kind of really comes to the fore with the whole narrative around strivers and skivers. You think about how, um, you know, something like The Apprentice valorizes entrepreneurs, um, whereas other reality TV shows like Benefit Street kind of pathologizes and stigmatizes people as skivers. Um, and then you can also think about how um, you, the, the super rich, the audio privilege, tend to use the, a language of hard work, as a kind of class language of graft in a way, uh, to justify what they're doing. So how people like Boris Johnson, um, for example, and Trump say they, they, they deserve to be in this position that they're in, this vastly wealthy, privileged position, because they've worked hard. Yeah, they deserve it. They deserve their status because they've worked hard and so well. And I think, you know, you can pick apart that as well, but this, this idea of hard work justifying your position is, is part of how they valorise what they, the, the vast inequality they're part of. So I have quite a lot of problems with meritocracy today. Um, the fourth problem is that I think it works as a myth to obscure 
social and economic inequalities and the role that this narrative, this idea or ideology plays in actually curtailing social mobility. So you might think about how, for example, in America, the most unequal Western society doesn't have any more fluid intergenerational mobility than Sweden, but its, it's myth of mobility, this myth that anyone can make it, is, you know, it comes to validate its much more vastly unequal social system. So, <clears throat> so to understand this, I think we also need to think a bit about where this whole idea came from and how it came to have traction in the first place. Um, so there are different ways we, we can do this. You might think about how it works in popular culture, in politics, in academia and theory. So as a word, this word meritocracy um, came into being in the, in the mid-1950s. It's got a really short but really contorted history. So the first recorded use is by an industrial sociologist, Alan Fox, who was writing in a journal called Socialist Commentary, which was described at the time by Clement Attlee, the Prime Minister, as being a useful corrective to the new statesman, because it was a bit left of that. And he basically says, this is the first recorded use of the term, and he says, you know, why would anyone believe in meritocracy? Why would you have that kind of social system where you give the already gifted more prizes and more privileges? Why would you do that? You know, why, why on earth would you do it? And so instead, he's basically arguing for more equality of wealth, and he's also kind of interested, he's got some interesting ideas about how you might organise society more fairly. So he says, he has this system that he develops. He, he says, I want to see cross-grading where people who do really crappy jobs uh, or you know, socially undesirable jobs like bin men get lots of time off in lieu of you know, the fact that they have to do work that no one else wants to do. So he's got some really good ideas, I think, about like, kind of how you might redistribute um, the hard, hard work, difficult work, as well as money. Um, so for him, you know, meritocracy is pretty much a term of abuse. It's something that you, it's like a kind of swear word, yeah? And then it moves through the, the social theorist Michael Young, who writes a bestseller called The Rise of the Meritocracy, uh, which popularises the word. Um, and he, he, was, he wrote the Labour Party's manifesto in 1945, and he helped set up the Open University and the Consumers Association. He was kind of quite, uh, he's often talked of as a, a polymath and a social entrepreneur. So this popularises the word, and again, it's kind of, it's critiquing it, but he's only critiquing it, he's mainly critiquing it in terms of education. So grammar schools is his big bugbear, really. He doesn't like the way in which educational stratification is working, is being popularised at that time. Um, and he writes this kind of popular satire, which popularises the word, but is also quite, it's, it's a bit more complex. You know, it's not, it's not very snappy, tracked. It's not a short article that gets its message across very, very snappily and cogently. Um, so I think there it starts to get a bit more murky. And also he's, he's, got a, he's got a kind of interesting relationship to the left. So he, you know, he was part of the Labour Party, but later on, for example, he kind of backtracks and says, I'm not really, he's not convinced about comprehensive schooling. He eventually joins the Social Democratic Party. His, his politics are a little bit slippy and slidy. Um, but so it kind of moves from being a, a, a term of abuse. And like for, ha, for the philosopher Hannah Arendt, she, for her, it's just kind of something that's beyond the pale as well. She says it's just a kind of system, it's just a kind of a bad word like any other oligarchy. It's just it's kind of something that pushes inequality. But then in the 1970s, um, Michael Young's friend Daniel Bell, um, who's a kind of sociologist and theorist of 
the, what he calls the knowledge society, says, hey, you know, meritocracy might be something that's quite useful. We can encourage competition, encourage people to produce more wealth for, for the knowledge economy. And so it begins to be something that has a bit of positive traction. And I think it's able to do that because there's a strong welfare state, you know, so to catch the people who can compete. And then by the 80s, it's used as a, it's picked up by right-wing think tanks as something that you might use to popularize and promote um, the idea that e equality is something that you, you get if you compete well enough, yeah? Equality of, of opportunity rather than equality of outcome, which is the traditional labor goal. So it's, it's kind of done this U-turn in value, really, from something that's slander to something that's thought of as okay and positive. And as, a, as an idea, it's, as an ideology, it extends beyond that, extends beyond the time when the word came into being. Um, so you can think about how it might be connected to various different ideas to work harder to progress from, say, the end of the French Revolution onwards, from the expansion of modern industrial capitalism. Um, so you can see it, for example, in kind of various strands, of historical strands, like the Samuel Smiles idea that you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and kind of compete to the top. So then I think it's kind of got this, the way it changes, um, you, can, you can understand its specific contemporary meaning in relation to kind of transitions that happen in, in society from the social, forward to social democracy onwards. So the, the moment when it emerges is a time that's sometimes called the era of mass affluence, you know, the 1950s. It's a moment when you have the expansion of the middle classes, the expansion of new deals and welfare states, of jobs and cutting poverty. And clearly this, this is a moment which is more beneficial to some people financially, mainly, you know, white men in particular, than all the women that were unpaid and all the people that were excluded from occupations on the grounds of their ethnicity. So uh, this is a moment that I kind of think of as liberal social democratic meritocracy. And then from the 1970s, a different settlement begins to emerge with kind of this louder claims for equality in terms of race, <coughs> sexuality, and gender. And whilst through the social movements that emerge in the 60s and 70s, and whilst some of those demands have been met through anti-discrimination laws, through gay marriage, through equal pay acts, some others clearly haven't been. So we have new varieties of misogyny, racism and homophobia that have moved into the ascendancy. But I think that the kind of new settlement in terms of meritocracy involved popularizing the idea that everyone, you know, regardless of their gender, their ethnicity, their class, should have an equal chance. And at the same time, it rolled back the kind of gains of the welfare state, the Fordist deal, in, in favor of, kind of neoliberal deregulation, marketization, which meant that this ladder between the 1% and the rest gets longer and longer. So I think of this moment as kind of neoliberal meritocracy, in which um, the kind of the attempts to kind of commodify and marketize the, the desires which were being promoted by social movements really kind of moves into the ascendancy. So it's a moment when um, what you know, various theorists call corporate populism or black entrepreneurialism or marketized feminism gets kind of seized upon and kind of used, used to try and attract and enlist people into, into this system. Um, so it's at the same time, you know, these constituencies, you know, of, of people who basically aren't overprivileged white men are kind of more amenable to being addressed by, by, by meritocracy. And they also often have kind of more of a deficit. You know, they have to work harder to get up the ladder in the first place. 
So that's a kind of that's a problem, yeah. But the the idea, at the same time, the idea that it's an equal playing field is being very much promoted. It's, you know, it works as a fiction which serves the vested interest of an elite, of the erosion of public interests and social safety nets. So I think this idea is promoted through a variety of different areas, um, through you know, social th theory, through popular culture, through politics. And in the book that, I just, I just, um, that came out last year that I just wrote, uh, I look at how some of these different spheres are working how some of these different constituencies have been encouraged to adopt meritocratic ideas and whether they've been persuasive or not. Um, so overall, it argues that the idea of meritocracy uh, kind of works today to marketise the idea of equality, and it's, it's kind of reacted against the social movements of the 60s to do that. And instead of in meritocracy, I say that we need to argue for economic equality, for more equality of outcome, to get back to that language, and to combine it with social and cultural and environmental diversity as well. So broadly in the book, in the, in the first part, I look at what I've just been talking about, the way in which the term travels, the way it's related to social context. And then in the, in the second part, I kind of look at more kind of how it works in popular culture. So I look at different kind of case studies around reality TV, for example, um, how it works in terms of celebrity and um, kind of social media controversies. So I think for, uh, I'm very interested in how one of the most kind of um, ubiquitous areas of meritocracy, meritocratic populism, has been the talent TV show format, like programmes like American Idol, which dramatised the idea of the ladder of opportunity and the savagery of intensely individualistic, atomised competition. So in the, I have this chapter on um, a US-based reality TV show called Project Greenlight, um, and this kind of looks at how ethnicity works in relation to ideas meritocracy today and this was a it's a it's a competition to make a, t a, a feature film that was set up by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and there's been several different series of it um, and there was basically two series and then it, it got it got kind of widely critiqued for just um, having a, a panel of white guys um, with with kind of want to be filmmakers who are also white men as well so it got, it got critiqued for that by the end of the second series, and they went away and they tried to diversify it a bit. So they brought in uh, Effie Brown, who's the um, producer from Dear White People, onto the panel. Um, and they tried to diversify the way in which they attracted wannabe filmmakers as well, as you can see from, from that tweet. But, so they, they kind of made efforts to diversify it. But then what happened uh, was that this, this, there was this whole controversy over a moment that happened on, in the show where um, Matt Damon, Effie Brown said, you know, I think we need to think here about who we're interviewing and who we're pushing forward and about the scripts that we're showing because I just want to note that there's only one, one black character here in this, in this whole film, you know, and basically it's, it's a, a prostitute. And is that a bit problematic? And should we perhaps think about the fact that we're mainly voting for, for white male wannabe film producers? Should we have a conversation about that? And she got shut down by Matt Damon, who said, who told her that's not how you do film, uh, how, it's not how you do diversity. You don't do it that way at all. You do it later on when you, you're doing the casting and the, of, of the actors. So this moment that happened on the reality show kind of went viral and it, it's kind of widely, it was just, it was kind of poked fun at. So there were loads of tweets that went through the hashtag Damon-splaining and it was, they said things like, you know, um, it, I wish Matt Damon could 
offer me a good stylist from my locks, you know. Um, I've got, hi guys, Matt Damon here. I'm at the local hospital to tell these women what to expect during their pregnancy. So it's it kind of, up, you know, it's kind of, it's riffing on the idea of mansplaining, where men explain things to women, and white-splaining, where white people explain racism to black people. And it kind of, you know, it's a play on that, celebrity-splaining as well. So I thought this was kind of really interesting because it kind of happened before Me Too, it happened before Weinstein, it happened before Oscars So White, but it kind of fed into that. It was part of the, the whole movement of critiquing the, the whiteness of, the, of Hollywood and the way in which the kind of micro power dynamics of that work and the way in which, you know, critiquing the idea that meritocracy isn't really there, you know? It's, it's, it's something, it, got, it was a moment when it got called out. And I thought that was very interesting because sometimes when, um, you know, the kind of work I do on cultural theory, it can be quite depressing in a way when you, you think about the, the kind of structures of power. And so it's good to show, show how that's being challenged, how that's, it's a kind of permanently alive contest. It's not something that's settled. It's something that's always up for grabs. So, so that was that. Um, and then I also looked at gender in relation to the idea of the mumpreneur. So this is the, the kind of idea that's popularised by the Daily Mail in particular, and also people like Annabelle Carmel. Um, the idea that you might, um, as, a, as a new mother, you might solve your employment issues by setting up a business from your kitchen table while your newborn crawls beneath it. Yeah? So this has become a really massively popular trope that's been encouraged. And it's been encouraged for really kind of understandable reasons. Yeah? But I was interested in how it worked and how it basically got used as a kind of safety valve or stopgap, a way to plaster over other social problems, over the fact that you know, people have the right to ask for flexible working, but they don't have the right to get it. They don't have the right to work part-time. The way in which you know, paternity leave is still really crummy. Um, the way in which employees uh, sack people on maternity leave illegally. The way in which you know, women's life chances um, women's work chances after having kids often go into freefall. So I, th I, th I thought it was very interesting how this was being promoted um, to people as a kind of exciting way to, to cut through all those problems and as a kind of plaster effect uh, around it for, you know, for really understandable reasons. So I look at how meritocracy works, neoliberal meritocracy works through popular culture as well as through social theory um, and how I also thought, tried to talk about the rich, the ultra-rich, how they tried to, to make themselves more palatable, more, more everyday. Uh, they kind of cast themselves as what I call norm-core plutocrats to show how, you know, they're just like us. You know, and the royal family do this now increasingly as well. Um, it's, you know, something which kind of increased, came into being with Diana and then has been adapted. So you have, um, you know, Wills and Kay emoting about that, how they're just like us. You have, um, you know, them showing, showing pictures of themselves in, in their garden, as well as big state occasions. So I was kind of very interested in, in that and how it's, off, it's used, you know, because they are human, obviously, but it's, it's used as a justification for their position, you know. They're ordinary, but they deserve it. Um, and so I, I got quite interested in this, talked about this a lot. I think it's encapsulated by this book by Dragon's Den judge Duncan Bannatyne, who says anyone can do it. And I think this is, you know, it shows how neoliberal meritocracy is the kind of key legitimating motif of contemporary capitalism. This idea that, 
you know, the, the book is promoted by saying, it, you know, it relives, relives his colourful rags to riches tale from ice cream salesman to multimillionaire, explaining how anyone could take the same route as he did if they really want to. You know, so it's all about the onus being on you as an individual. Um, you know, only, if you want it enough, you can get it. It's just down to you. And what it doesn't say, you know, is he made his money on the back of privatising uh, the, the NHS. You know, he, 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 made, he cashed in on, on the privatisations of local authorities, social services and the NHS, you know, fitness centres, retirement homes. These are all, you know, they were areas that were in the public domain and he, he made money by cashing in on that. But instead what gets validated is this idea of entrepreneurial noose, legitimated through a kind of class language of, gla of graft, which is the same... In a different way, it's this, but, but very similar as well, it's the same kind of motif that, that Alan Sugar uses. And I think the, the role of The Apprentice in all this is kind of hugely interesting and important, not only in terms of Trump and his rise, but in terms of how Alan Sugar gets brought into the UK government as a kind of enterprise are to, to, you know, and popularised in schools, the way in which that is popularised in schools instead of, you know, you could think, think about, you, know, you could have cooperative education around, that could be, you know, some, a progressive alternative. So, I yeah, I also talk about politics. I'm kind of interested in how meritocracy is something which get, gets popularised through political discourse. Um, so earlier I mentioned that whilst meritocracy travels, it, get, it gets more right-wing. Um, as it travels through social theory, it gets more right-wing. And this is because the, as the meaning of meritocracy is something which is being shaped from the 1970s in particular by kind of neoliberal politics that start to become actually existing. Um, so I use, the, I use the term kind of meritocratic feeling to try and, try and think about this a bit, to try and think about how prime ministers and politicians present themselves in particular ways um, to think about, to, to project an idea of meritocracy. And so, for example, I think about, I look at how um, the, the moment when the particularly modern idea of meritocracy gets pushed is under Thatcherism. So this is the moment when in Britain people began to be uh, positioned um, very, very concertedly as primarily individual consumers, as bounded entities whose you know, only, only points of reference mainly are their, and, and social reference are themselves and their families. So it's kind of aspirational in that it's promoting this idea that anyone can rise to the social pile if they work hard enough. And it pushes this particularly at women, I think, and it pushes um, the, the notion of achievement and merit to, it links it to that of individual consumption and kind of away from intelligence in a way. So it's got, a, a dis, Thatcherism has a distaste for ingrained privilege, particularly if it's any way supported by the state. So it's kind of profoundly anti-establishment in its way. You know, it's kind of sticking two fingers up to the great and the good of that time, even whilst it's simultaneously being quite Victorian in its sexual, racial morality. Um, so, you know, this, the, the idea of aspiration and social mobility being combined with conservatism is a key message at this time. And you, I think we can think about how, you know, she's a millionaire's daughter who dies at the rich, sorry, a millionaire's wife who dies at the rich, but at the same time, the image that she promotes of herself is that of a grocer's daughter who's the kind of matron of the nation. Um, so I'm interested in how prime minister personas project different ideas of meritocracy. We might think about how John Major, the grey man, who's depicted in cartoons with his underpants outside his trousers, is a bit more convincing in terms of meritocracy because he's less financially privileged than Thatcher. You know, he stands in his soapbox, the image is it's kind of a bit more Edwardian, 
Um, he talks about maids cycling to communion on the village green. Um, but in the way, meritocracy kind of moves and travels with different prime ministers. Um, and so you might think about how it, the formation continues and how it's changed under New Labour um, and then the Conservative Liberal Democrats and then the Conservative governments. So I think this, this is a moment, New Labour is a moment where they continue a neoliberal programme of privatising the welfare state, um, introducing academy schools, public-private partnerships, introducing competition into the NHS. You know, it's a moment where the state has an active role in facilitating the expansion of markets and privatisation throughout the social body. Yet at the same time, they pursue this uh, as at the same time as introducing a more socially liberal agenda, you know, one in which the idea that to be racist or to be sexist or to be homophobic is a problem. So this socially liberal agenda marks a significant break from Thatcherism, and it's more or less continued in some ways, I think, by Cameron and May. Um, this is a moment which also introduced welfare-oriented policies like the minimum wage and sure start centres, which are designed to offset the, the worst excesses of neoliberal capitalism. Uh, but in, in particular, I think, interestingly, to affect people at the moment of their, their youth in particular, they're less bothered about what happens later on. So under austerity governments, um, it, this has become, as we know, the situation has become worse, increasingly unequal. Um, and I think it's also become more punitive. So, and it's also become more moral. So under Cameron, you have this idea of asp um, kind of um, aspiration nation, where it's, it's your, it's your, if you don't try hard, if you, if you, he deliberately says, he very explicitly says, that parents who don't encourage their children and, and, delay, and he says labour are, are failing morally. They're failing. They're exempting themselves of the responsibility to get part of the aspiration nation. So, you know, you're condemning your children to the scrap heap in his, his idea. And the ability to believe in yourself and by extension your child in this, this view is primary. And social disadvantage is, is, is pretty much presented as a kind of mental obstacle which you have to will yourself over by sheer willpower and hard work. So I think um, it's, it's interesting how it works. It's important how it works differently, how it's differently nuanced um, and articulated. Again, it often works through um, hard work. So you could think about how Cameron and his cabinet doesn't, they can't really draw on any of the, the, the threads that John Major or Thatcher can about being a grocer's daughter, because, you know, being, not going to university, because they're vastly privileged, you know, they're, they're, they're aristocrats. Um, but they still do use this idea of hard work, you know, to, to make themselves uh, bond with, with working class people, I think to make themselves legitimate, seem like they, they, they deserve uh, their social success. So it kind of works through moral, uh, effective, uh, it works through feelings as well as it, it works through ideas. Then under Theresa May, I think she does interesting things as well because she, it's slightly different because when she comes into being, she says, she says what I'm going to do is levels this, you know, level the playing field. I'm going to, I'm going to take um, that the, the kid in the council estate. I'm going to take the neglected boy. I'm going to, I'm going to deal with the, the single mother, and I'm going to make it better for them. I'm going to level that playing field. Um, so it kind of recognises the injustice that exists, but then the prescription. Of, of how you deal with that, it's all about nationalisation, it's all about you know, capitalism, it's all about offering corporate solutions to inequality. 
So I call that kind of neoliberal justice narrative. Yeah. So she she kind of she offers this narrative about how she might level the playing field. <clears throat> She's responding to this, you know, the fact that it's increasingly palpable to people that we live in this vastly unequal society where, you know, people, 62 people own the same as half the world at the time she came into power. Um, uh, in which, you know, you, there's the kind of the, the idea of the 1% has got more traction. So she has to address it, but the way she addresses it is by, you know, saying what we need is more capitalism, basically. The solution for inequality is a kind of different type of inequality. So, so yeah, so under May, you've got the kind of extension of privatisation, of, you know, increasing competition. So with universities, we have, they're kind of divided into tiers, you know, differently, gold, silver, and bronze. There's much more kind of segmentation that's going on. Um, and I think you can think about how, uh, more broadly, the kind of aggressive moralism that Cameron brought has become more xenophobic, more, more sadistic in some of its more right-wing populist incarnations. So it's kind of reshaping what merit means, and it's, it can be as racist in its way as Harvard's earlier admission policies, perhaps more so as it's overt. Okay, so... So I think um, you know this idea of being on the side of the ordinary person, of being on the side of blue-collar labour and the squeezed middle classes against a corrupt elite, is something that right-wing populists increasingly do, and they do it as part of an idea of meritocracy. You know, they, that is bound up with with their with their ideas. So I think um, it's it's a quite it's also a moment in which these ideas are being challenged. So you might think about how, in terms of popular discourse, there's more there's popular narrative, there's more ideas out there that, that things aren't as privileged as they used to be. There's more problems with the idea that anyone can make it, um, that you can work, just work hard enough and get to the top isn't something which appears on TV with such regularity anymore. So you might think about how you know, Sex in the City presents this very glamorous, meritocratic TV, you know, idea of what, what life is like. Whereas in girls, it's more precarious, you know, it's, she's more vulnerable, even though she's still very, very privileged, et cetera. You know, she's kind of working as an intern and it, it's, it's more difficult. We might think about how in Breaking Bad and its spin-off, Better Call Saul, you know, being great at chemistry or being really good at law um, whilst working really hard isn't enough for them. You know, they, they kind of end up being, being flung to the social scrap heap. And that's pretty much the dramatic pretext of both those series, just as it is for The Wire. And you might think about how the you know, kind of wider popular narratives about Grenfell more recently, um, you can think about how Loki kind of names the vested interests that led to the tragedy and offers this really kind of counter neoliberal meritocracy. You know, he kind of names, the, he has this fantastically inclusive video, which includes the whole video in it and, and names the kind of corporate and, um, you know, it, corporate perpetrators of the tragedy and, and the councils that, with their vested interests that, that were bound up with these corporations. We might think about how, you know, news stories about the Paradise Papers or the Parasite Papers, um, Oxbridge Decline in Diversity and Me Too are all, all movements this, that challenge this idea of a level playing field. So that, there's more kind of language out there, there's more stories out there that challenge the neoliberal meritocratic myth as show it as to be in crisis and some which challenge it. Um, what, what, can, what can Labour do, just before we get to Brexit, 
Um, I just I just throw out a few ideas. I'd be really interested in hearing in yours. Um, firstly, I think we can kind of work to construct policies which are devoted to sharing the wealth and tackling the vindictive levels of inequality that we have in this country. So policies which work towards actually existing equality, equality of outcome, rather than this, this myth of equality of opportunity, uh, which offers, you know, kind of vague words whilst continuing to cut and to privatise. So that, I think that's what Corbyn's team are doing, and I think that's why there's been so much energy moving in the Labour Party's direction um, since he won the leadership direction, which is fantastic. So that's great, we need to keep that up. Um, secondly, I think we need to call out the lies of neoliberal meritocracy much more. I think we need to name it as a problem. I think we need to talk much more loudly about the idea that anyone can make it if they work hard enough is, is rubbish, it's a lie. It's there as a fig leaf for corporate vested interests, for the vested interests of the 1%. It functions as a fig leaf for slashing uh, social safety nets, for increasing inequality. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that, that these lies are kind of called out loudly enough. So the lies on the side of the Brexit bus, that it would give billions to the NHS, these are lies that are still being peddled today, you know, by the Conservative Party, only today. Uh, Brexit was a coup by the right-wing businessmen who want to turn the UK into a, a deregulated offshore tax haven. And they do so by, uh, you know, appealing to people's anxieties and the difficulties that have emerged over the past a few decades, as well as to anxieties about racism. And I don't think the, the Corbyn team are really talking about that enough. I think they need to, because otherwise supportive energy is going to be draining away from them. Um, thirdly, one thing I think we need to... The press. I need, we think we can have... There's so much scope for more popular campaigns about the way in which the right-wing press dominate this country and dominate its imaginary and its sense of what is normal. I think this can happen from the grassroots. In fact, it would be more effective if it did, to some extent. So this, these are some kind of tweets that happened around the time of the Corbyn leadership campaign, where there seemed to be a bit more energy against, against the right-wing media. But I think we could, there's, there's much more scope there for more imaginative cultural activism against the standard, you know, which has signed deals recently with, with corporations to give them favourable publicity in its news. You know, only George Osborne signed a deal only last week for that. Um, <clears throat> against, the, you know, The Sun, The Express, The Telegraph, kind of popular education project to show that their agendas aren't actually conservative with a small c. They're not even based on, the, on what's good for the majority of people in Britain. They're underwritten by 1% millionaires and billionaires, many of whom don't live in Britain, which li who live in tax havens in Monaco. So I think that the power of, the, of these you know, rags in setting the agenda, and setting the kind of anti-right and anti-women agenda has been challenged, but we need to find ways of extending it, exposing them, and just you know, making them more embarrassing to read, frankly. And then lastly, I think another thing we can do is extend our, our, the ways we have of talking about um, anti competitive individualism. So I think Corbyn, Corbyn's language and challenges to aspiration moves in that direction. You know, he's popularised this idea of aspiration for all, which I, I think is an important shift in the, in the narrative. I think, I think we also need to develop languages which talk about how we can only combat destructive inequality, sexism, racism, environmental crisis, if we, if we work together, you know, collectively. We can only do it together. You know, rather than this, this way in which we're presented with very lonely forms of selective empowerment, which are making our world much more unequal, 
much uh, more precarious and scary and volatile. So I should stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Mm.